Well, shortly after the United States Constitution was ratified in 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote these now famous words to the French scientist Jean-Baptiste Leroy. Our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. What a way to start a sermon, right? Nothing really hooks you in quite like those two things. But Franklin's words have a ring of truth to them, don't they? History and our own experience confirm two things that are true. You will undoubtedly die, and you will certainly have to pay your taxes. But are death and taxes really the only certainties that we can expect in this life? Are they really the the two great authorities to which we must all submit one day? Do funeral homes and the IRS really have the upper hand on all of us? Well, thankfully, Ben Franklin's not the only one with something to say about our experience with death and taxes. In our sermon passage this morning, Jesus also has something to say about the matter. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 13 to 27 this morning. If you remember from where we left off in Mark five weeks ago, Jesus has been dealing with multiple attacks on his authority from Jewish religious leaders. The chief priests and the scribes have been looking for a way to kill Jesus since his cleansing of the temple back in Mark 11, verse 18. And then in verse 27 of chapter 11, when Jesus returns to the temple, they formally challenge Jesus' authority, asking him this very charged question. By what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Who gave you the authority to do these things? That question is really at the heart of this section of Mark. Different delegations of religious leaders are now being deployed in order to discredit Jesus's authority as the Messiah. So chapters 11 through 12 of Mark are kind of like a theological boxing match taking place in the temple courts between Jesus in one corner and the Jewish religious leaders in the other corner. And in chapter 12, uh, verse 12, we find Jesus's opponents now huddled up in their corner of the ring, scheming about what their next move is going to be. Who, who are they going to send in uh, next to square off against Jesus? We pick up the story in verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. 
Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this word. We praise you that you are a God who lives and speaks to us through it. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see wondrous things from it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Here's what I think the main idea of this passage is. The main thing that God wants us to see and do in response to his word this morning. Submit everything to Jesus, the Lord of lords and the Lord of life. Submit everything to Jesus, the Lord of lords and the Lord of life. And we're going to unpack that main idea by looking at this passage really in in two parts, two ways that we see this passage assert Jesus's ultimate authority over our lives. Number one, the Lord of lords. And number two, the Lord of life. So point number one, the Lord of lords. We're going to see this in verses 13 to 17. So the first challengers to, to step into the ring are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, they've been working together since all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, to try and take Jesus down. But these guys weren't the most natural of allies. The Pharisees were Jewish hardliners. They were nationalistic, strict adherents to the Jewish law. The Herodians, on the other hand, were supporters, supporters of Herod's dynasty and indirectly of Rome. They were, they were basically Rome's political puppets. So this is an unlikely pairing. It would be like Nancy Pelosi and Ted Cruz teaming up together. You just, you just don't see this happening. And the first part of their plan is to, is to butter Jesus up with some blatant flattery. Verse 14, they affirm him as a man of integrity and as a people pleaser. In their own words, Jesus is truthful. He doesn't care what other people think of him. He doesn't show partiality to, to anybody. And he teaches the word of God truthfully. Sure, they, they may say these things insincerely, which Jesus fully knows. But this doesn't make what they say about him any less true. Not even his enemies can deny that Jesus is the real deal. And I think this is a really good word for us. If you're a Christian, would, would those who, who oppose you for your faith in Christ, maybe you're non-Christian coworker or your neighbor or family member or, or the people that you engage with on social media, would they be able to say that you are truthful, that you fear God more than man, that you don't show partiality, 
and that you teach the way of God truthfully. What about, what about us as a church? This is the kind of reputation that Faith Church has in our community. Could our opponents say these things about us? Well, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they try to spring their trap on Jesus in the form of a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this this tax was immensely unpopular among the Jews. It had been imposed upon the people in 6 AD uh, when Rome occupied the region of Judea. And some Jews refused to pay it, claiming that to pay this tribute was an endorsement of this pagan emperor empire's injustice towards them. And so the question was really a question of loyalty that, that presupposed that a fundamental opposition between loyalty to God and loyalty to Rome. Which is more important, Jesus? Should we validate Caesar's unjust rule over us by paying this tax? Or do we have divine sanction as God's people to revolt? Whose flag do you fly, Jesus? That's, that's really the question behind this question. And if Jesus answers yes, pay the tax, he's going to anger the people who hate the Romans and their oppressive taxation. But if he says no, don't pay the tax, he's going to be labeled an insurrectionist and an enemy of the state, and it's going to put him on Rome's most wanted list. So the question from the vantage point of Jesus's opponents puts Jesus in this lose-lose situation. It's a test designed to fail. They think they finally got him pinned to the mats. But Jesus instantly sniffs out their trap. And in verse 15, he calls out their hypocrisy and he asks them to bring him a denarius. A a denarius was a small silver coin that, that represented a day's wage of labor. On one side of the coin was an engraved image of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of Rome at the time. And on the other side was, were inscribed the words, son of a divine, high priest of Rome. So you can, you can see how this coin would have been in an egregious violation, if you know your Old Testaments, of the Ten Commandments and, a blasphemy, and, a, and blasphemy of the highest degree to any faithful Jew. Son of a divine, high priest of Rome. And yet... Notice who hands one of these over to Jesus. Jesus asks for a denarius, presumably because he, he doesn't have one. But the Pharisees and the Herodians, seems all they have to do is reach into their pockets. And this brings us to verse 17. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, we could spend the rest of the morning on this verse. Entire political theories and philosophies have been built off of this one verse. But, but I want us to just make two observations about what Jesus says in verse 17. Number one, if you're, if you're a Christian, recognize that makes you a citizen of two kingdoms at the same time. If you're a Christian, that makes you a citizen of two kingdoms at the same time. 
These two kingdoms are what Augustine called the city of man and the city of God. The city of man and its institutions, like human governments, have have been granted a, a very particular, limited, and temporary jurisdiction. Their job is to provide a kind of basic protective justice for all of its citizens. But the city of God, which gospel-preaching local churches on earth represent, deals with matters of eternal purpose. Our jurisdiction transcends the limited, temporal, protective justice of the city of man. The church, on behalf of God, deals with matters of worship, faith, belief, and, and perfect eternal justice. And, citizen, and Christians are citizens of both kingdoms. And we don't want to confuse the two kingdoms. To use the Bible's language, governments hold the sword and churches hold the keys of the kingdom of heaven. God authorizes governments to wield the sword, and he authorizes churches to exercise the keys, which means pastors shouldn't pretend to hold the sword and presidents shouldn't pretend to hold the keys. As a church, it's not our job to administer the death penalty or to punish citizens who've broken the law. And it's not President Biden's job to tell us who we should baptize or what we should believe about God. Government and the church are separate in the sense that they have distinct God-authorized jurisdictions. So you could say that the Bible approaches governments like I do babysitters. When I ask someone to babysit my kids, the babysitter doesn't have the responsibility to teach my kids to love and obey me. That is my job, not theirs. I have given the babysitter a very specific, temporary, limited scope of responsibility. Keep my kids fed and safe. Get them in their PJs. Keep them from fighting. Do not let them set the house on fire. The, babys the babysitter's jurisdiction is limited. I've given them a modest, specific job. I've not given them the job of, of teaching them to love me or, or how to worship God. And yet, my kids still have obligations to the babysitter for as long as they're under the babysitter's jurisdiction. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, give to Caesar the things that belong to him and to God the things that belong to him. Even if you are a citizen in the city of God, you still have obligations to the city of man. We have obligations to, to both kingdoms. Now, what are those obligations? That's, that's the question. What are those obligations? Well, for starters, Jesus says, pay your taxes. Give that denarius back to Caesar. Listen to how Paul in Romans 13, verse 7, and, and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, kind of expand on what Jesus is saying here. Here's Paul in Romans 13, 7. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue, revenue is owed, respect to whom res, respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Peter in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor 
the emperor. This means that government doesn't have to be Christian in order to be legitimate. Governments don't have to be Christian in order to be legitimate. Even when a government opposes God and his people, just as Rome did in Jesus's day, we still have obligations to it. We're still required to show respect and honor and pay our taxes to those God places in authority over us. Even even when they don't respect and honor us. It's interesting that that back in Mark chapter 10 verse 43, you remember what Jesus calls Rome's leaders? He calls them tyrants who abused their authority over the Jews. And yet, what does he say here? He says, give back to Caesar the very thing he's been using to abuse you. Give him his coin. It belongs to the city of man anyway. And yet, notice, notice in verse 17, whose jurisdiction Caesar's jurisdiction ultimately falls under. His domain is contained within God's much greater domain. And this leads to the second observation from this verse. So secondly, though we are citizens of two legitimate kingdoms, and we have obligations to both, these kingdoms are not equal. We are not dealing with equal kingdoms here. Caesar, he may have claim on our taxes, and we owe him our honor and our respect, but only God can make claim on your life, your worship, and your ultimate allegiance. Some things legitimately belong to the emperor, Jesus says, but everything belongs to God because nothing falls outside of his domain. Everything is under his jurisdiction. So when Jesus says, Give to God the things that are God's. He is putting everything in its proper place. That little coin, it may bear the image and the inscription of Caesar, but you, humanity, you bear the image and the inscription of your creator. And that means you belong to him. We have been created in God's image and his inscription has been stamped on our consciences, Paul tells us in Romans 1. And one day, we will give an account to him because we all belong to him. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they were concerned about if Jews Jews should submit to Caesar. But the much, much bigger question is if we're submitting to our creator. We must give to God what belongs to him, which means we must give him the entirety of our lives. Not some of it, not a slice of it, all of it. All of it belongs to him because the scope of God's authority is total. It is exhaustive. It is unlimited and it is absolute. And because Jesus is God's divine son, because he's the king that God himself has installed on Zion, on his holy mountain, Psalm 2 tells us, we must all submit to his sovereign, absolute authority over our lives. God calls us rightfully to hand everything over to Jesus. We turn everything over to him, every square inch of our hearts, 
And that begins by repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus Christ as the Lord of lords and as your Savior. And unlike the political powers of this world, Jesus is a good king. He's a good king who fears God perfectly and always acts in the best interests of his people. He went to the cross for your sins and for mine, taking on the full wrath of the Father. And then he rose from the dead after three days so that he might grant forgiveness and eternal life to all those who would hand their lives over to him in repentance and faith. If you're not a Christian, Jesus makes this claim on you. He demands and he deserves your life because he died to save it. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, repent and believe. Submit your life to Christ today. But handing our lives over to Christ, it isn't just this one-time event. It it begins in that initial act of repentance and faith, but every day, every day, we are called to submit our lives to Christ. We live out our repentance and faith by submitting everything to Jesus every day. We submit our bodies. We submit our jobs, our our words, our desires, our reputations, our futures, our bank accounts, what we eat, what we drink, who we sleep with, what we watch, what we read, what we dream about. Everything belongs to him. Nothing falls outside of his jurisdiction. He calls us to hand everything over to him. This is one reason that Jesus gives us the local church. The local church is an embassy of this heavenly kingdom that God leaves behind on earth. When we gather together as a church, like we're gathering right now, we are gathering as as an outpost of heaven, a kind of colony of heavenly citizens who've committed to helping one another live out our submission to King Jesus. Each week when we gather to sit under all all that Christ has commanded us in his word and to celebrate the ordinances, we are declaring his supreme authority over our lives to the world. And week in and week out, that word steadily conforms us more and more to the image of Christ so that we increasingly resemble citizens in heaven. This is why formally joining a local church is so critical to our discipleship. Because the local church is the means by which God intends to grow you and me as those who belong to him. If you want to think more about about the local church and why God says you should formally belong to one, I encourage you to come to that membership class on January 21st that Ryan announced earlier. Church membership matters. It matters because when we gather as a church in Christ's name as his representative, we gather as an embassy of heaven. Jesus didn't task the United Nations He didn't task Congress or the U.S. Supreme Court to represent his heavenly rule on earth. He's tasked the humble, lowly, seemingly insignificant, and powerless little local church. He's asked us, he's asked us, Faith Church, to represent him and to declare his authority to the world. And within our walls, you should find, you will find an entirely different nation. Sojourners, exiles, citizens of Christ's kingdom, all helping one another make it to their heavenly home. 
You should find a people who increasingly look like the king that they have submitted to. A people who are poor in spirit and meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and who are pure in heart. People who turn the other cheek, who rejoice with those who rejoice, who weep with those who weep, and who are putting sin to death, and putting the needs of others above their own. When we gather together as God's redeemed people on earth, we are getting a picture, a preview of his heavenly kingdom and the life to come. Faith Church, is this what the world sees when they look at us? Is this this who they see when they look within our walls? This brings us to our second point, the Lord of life. The Lord of life. You'll see these in verse, this in verses 18 to 27. In verses 18 to 27, the, the Sadducees, they now take their shot at Jesus. And ironically, uh, the Sadducees were the main political rivals of the Pharisees, one of the first groups that took their shot at Jesus. And one of the main areas of division between these two groups was the doctrine of the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the existence of the afterlife, but the Sadducees denied it. They they rejected it. They claimed to to give primacy to the words of Moses contained in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament scriptures. But according to their interpretation of Moses, there was no biblical basis for belief in a literal resurrection from the dead. Any reference to the, re- to the resurrection was at most to be understood in terms of, uh, of one's reputation or descendants living on after your death. But belief in a literal rising from the dead was, was theologically weak and intellectually embarrassing in their eyes. So rather than try to trap Jesus in his talks, the Sadducees, they they wanted to bait Jesus into a theological debate that would make him look like a fool for his fundamentalist, literal, and naive reading of the Old Testament. You can almost kind of feel and hear their smugness and their stifled laughter as they approach Jesus with their question. The riddle that they pose beginning in verse 20 through 23, it was this impossible scenario that they had drawn up based on the Old Testament law of leveret marriage, which which Moses spells out for us in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10. And the law basically said that that if a man died, died childless, his brother was required to marry his wife in order to produce an heir for the dead brother. You get an example of this in Genesis chapter 38, verse 8, uh, with Judah's daughter Tamar. But in the Sadducees scenario here, uh, a, a woman marries a man who dies without, without having children. She then marries the man's brother, but he also dies childless. And this happens to all seven brothers. And then finally, the, the woman dies, which leads to their question in verse 23. In the resurrection, you know, that literal, literal resurrection that you believe in, Jesus, when they all rise, whose wife will she be since the seven married her? 
See, the Sadducees, they think that they have just pressed Jesus into a corner, pitting Scripture against Scripture. If Jesus affirms the resurrection, then according to their scenario, one or all of the brothers would be guilty of adultery in the afterlife. But, once again, Jesus totally flips the script on his opponents. Verse 24, Isn't this the reason why you are mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You guys think, I'm the ignorant one. You guys claim Moses as your authority, but you don't even know what Moses said or the power of the God that he worshiped. You tell me who's the ignorant one, buddies. And they, they, just, they, just, they weren't off just a little bit in their interpretation. But verse 27, Jesus says they were, badly mistaken. And this is a really good reminder to us that that not all interpretations of Scripture are created equal. There are right interpretations of Scripture, and there are wrong interpretations of Scripture, and Jesus says that the Sadducees are dead wrong. Dead wrong. They approach the Bible on their own terms, not God's, letting their personal opinion on the matter form their view of the resurrection. And the result was them not, was them knowing a lot of words in the Bible. They knew a lot of words, but they didn't, they didn't know what those words meant. And they didn't know the God that those words proclaimed. Now, what exactly were the Sadducees getting wrong? Well, that's what Jesus spells out for us in verses 24 to 27. And he starts in verse 25 by correcting their, their faulty thinking about the afterlife. They reject the resurrection because they think of it as a continuation of normal human existence, verse 25. They think if there's a heaven, then heaven's going to be just like earth. And since life on earth involves marriage, therefore life in heaven must involve marriage. They presume the age to come, the age of the resurrection, is just an extension of this age. The problem is, Jesus says, that's not how it works in the life to come. For, he says, when they rise, he's referring back to the brothers and the riddle, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, life in heaven is not like life on earth. It's a new kind of eternal, immortal life where there will be no need for marriage. Because in the age to come, humans will no longer be subject to the curse of death. So there's not going to be any need to procreate. Instead, we'll be like angels who are eternal. Like angels, we, we won't die and our number will be fixed. We won't need to be fruitful and multiply in heaven. Thus, marriage doesn't carry over in the age to come. So in short, Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us right here in this little verse, verse 25, that the future age, the age of the resurrection, plays by very different rules than life in the present. Heaven surpasses earth on every qualitative level. It's better because it's not the same. And this is really important to understand because this flies in the face of what 
we typically believe about heaven and about how we live now. Our culture and our flesh tell us our joy and happiness must be found now. But scripture is clear that for the people of God, the age to come is going to be better in every single possible way. The world says our highest good is now, not future. But Jesus says our highest good is future, not now. Which means that all the joys, pleasures, and intimate relationships that we experience in this age aren't ultimate. They are built to end. And that includes marriage. God has designed earthly marriage to be a temporary shadow, a copy, a dress rehearsal for the greater marriage to come. It is a good and glorious gift from God meant to give way to the heavenly, never-ending marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. The only marriage that we will find in the age to come is the one between King Jesus and all those he's redeemed. Now, for those among us who are unmarried, this should be of immense encouragement to you. Your identity, joy, and your meaning are not anchored in your marital status in this age. It's anchored in your marital status to Jesus Christ in the age to come. I know you may be tempted to feel like a second-class citizen in the church because you are not married and because you don't have kids. But hear me, your, your singleness in this life doesn't mean that you are missing out on ultimate joy and meaning. Singleness and celibacy in this life, it is not a death sentence for you. You're not inferior or incomplete because you are single. Remember that the most fully human and complete person to ever walk this earth, Jesus Christ, was never married. He was never in a romantic relationship. He never had sex. And one day, you and all who are in Christ will be gloriously married to him forever. If you're unhappily married or you're in a difficult marriage, the fact that earthly marriage has an expiration date may come as a relief to you. But Jesus' teaching here, it goes beyond that. Even in the brokenness of this present age, your marriage, even a failed one or a difficult one, it bends heavenward and it has significance to it. Even the wounds and the conflicts of this age will give way to the Lamb's healing of his bride in the age to come. To those of us who are happily married or who have recently lost a spouse and you long to be reunited with them, that Jesus says our marriages will, will end is hard to hear. It may be hard to hear. Marriage between one man and one woman is it is a beautiful gift from God, one that he has called us to steward for his glory. But God has not designed it to bear the weight of serving as our ultimate joy and end. And if we look to marriage to bring us fulfillment and happiness, 
This is only going to lead us to frustration, bitterness, and disappointment, or the idolatry of having a spouse. I love being married to Stacy. I love being married to my wife. Apart from Christ, she is God's greatest gift to me. And I often wonder how, how the age to come could possibly be better without the intimacy and the friendship that I enjoy with her in this life. But even if I can't comprehend it now, Jesus' words here teach me that my marriage to him in the age to come will be even better than my marriage to Stacy right now. Now, does this mean I, I won't know who she is in the age to come? That I won't have any memory of our days together on earth? Well, I don't think so. Jesus isn't saying that our memories are going to get wiped, causing us to forget one another in heaven. And there are other passages in the New Testament that's, that do seem to indicate that we'll recognize other believers at the resurrection. So, should the Lord give me the joy of bumping into Stacy at the wedding supper of the Lamb, I suppose we, we may swap stories of our days on earth together. We may even laugh together as we remember our favorite inside jokes. Perhaps we'll, we'll share some knowing glances from across the table. Or perhaps I'll, I'll slip my hand into hers just for a moment as we worship the king together. I, I don't know for sure, but I do know, I do know that on that day, we won't grieve what we've lost. We will only rejoice in what we've gained. This faulty thinking about the resurrection, it's not the only only thing that Jesus corrects in these verses. This is only the first way the Sadducees have proved their ignorance of God's word and God's power. In verses 26 to, to 27, Jesus quotes the, the Pentateuch back at the Sadducees to, to prove the resurrection from the dead, from the man Moses himself. And he goes to perhaps the, the pinnacle text in the Pentateuch, Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush in, in Exodus 3. These are the words that, that we heard Bill read for us earlier in the service. And at first glance, Exodus 3, it seems like a really strange, bizarre passage for Jesus to go to to make his case. But notice, notice what Jesus is doing here. By appealing not only to Moses, but, but to the very words of God at the moment of his, of his first revelation to Moses, Jesus is meeting the Sadducees on their own ground. Jesus quoting these words to, to, to prove his point would be like one of us using the Constitution to argue constitutional law with the justices of the United States Supreme Court. But when you stop and you think about the theology Behind the passage Jesus picks, you begin to see just how wrong the Sadducees really were. Because when God says those words to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, 
He is making a theologically jam-packed, loaded announcement. He's revealing something about his very nature and character as God. He's revealing the heart that he has for his people. He's telling us his name. He's declaring himself to be the faithful God. The faithful God who enters into an eternal, unending covenant with those he saves and who always keeps his promises to his people, even in death. In other words, God's relationship to his people doesn't end when they die. So even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for centuries by this point, God's very declaration about himself implied that they would live on to worship him in the life to come. One day, they're going to rise from the dead because God doesn't leave his people for dead. That's the argument Jesus is making here. It's the point he's driving home. Unlike the covenant that we enter into with our earthly spouses, our spouses in earthly marriage, when God enters into a covenant with his people, there's no end. There's, there's no end. There's no until death do us part when God makes his covenant vows to us. His promises to us, they don't expire when we die. They live on even in death. And so we can be confident that one day we are going to live on too. And we can be confident of this because the permanences, the permanence of God's covenant-keeping promises don't depend on our power. They don't depend on us. They depend on God's power to keep his covenant and raise us from the dead. See, the Sadducees, ultimately, they dismissed the resurrection because they underestimated God. They think rising from the dead was a matter of human potential. But surprise, it's not. The resurrection doesn't depend on our power Jesus says, it depends on God's. And friends, that changes everything. That entirely changes the game. Because if it depends on God's power, then not even death itself will be able to stop God's people from getting up out of their graves one day. And you know how we know God possesses this kind of resurrection, earth-shattering, altering power? You know how we can be certain that he won't leave us for dead? Because he didn't leave his son for dead. And because Jesus' tomb is empty, one day your tomb is going to be empty too. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, one day if you are in Christ, he's going to raise you from the dead too. There is now an empty tomb with your name on it. Christian. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because when Jesus got up out of his grave, he not only proved God's covenant-keeping love, he also promised to deliver from death all those who had submitted to Christ as Lord of life. And as the Lord of life, when Christ returns, everything will be subject to him. On that day, every ruler, every authority, every power, and every earthly dominion that resisted him will be destroyed. 
He will hand the kingdom of God over to his father. Death will be destroyed, and the dead in Christ will rise to reign with their king forever and ever. Amen. For Jesus Christ is not the God of the dead. He's not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Maybe death and taxes aren't the only things that we can expect to come for us in this life after all. King Jesus, the Lord of lords and the Lord of life is coming too. And the only question is, are you submitting to him as your Lord? Let's take a moment now to reflect on this passage as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.